I'm Yancey Ford. And I'm Alan Jacobson. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Hey, it's going as well as can be expected during a pandemic and, you know, uh, civil unrest and all the other things yeah, that are going on right now. So wheels are Great. coming off of society. Uh, everything's uh, going to hell, but we're still doing a podcast. Woo! <laughs> it's celebration time. Yay. I, hey, I, there's toilet paper back on the shelves, though. At the at the grocery store? There sure is. You go to Trader Joe's and there it is. I went to a grocery store. I went to a Ralph's uh, for the first time. I went into a Ralph's. For the first mm-hmm. time in probably a, a month and a half, because I usually do the curbside pickup because they're not charging for it. And mm-hmm. uh, I was very uh, heartened to see that everything seemed to be stocked up. And also everyone in the store was wearing a mask. Wow, that's great, because I go to a lot of places, it seems like these days, and I feel like I'm the only person wearing a mask. It's a little frustrating when I see people not wearing masks. It's like, hey, people wear masks. We all want to live. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the mask I got, I got at CVS Pharmacy for two bucks. I got a bunch of them. They're like the kind that your dentist wears. I'm sure that you can get them cheaper somewhere else. Or I even hear that Hot Rod Cameras uh, is stocks uh, masks now as well. Well, we're working on it. We uh, we became a 3M dealer. So the legit masks from the 3M Corporation, uh, we have many cases on order right now. And the idea is to actually give legit, not strange, weird imported masks uh, to our customers who might need to fly on a plane or go to a hospital or do something. And so you, you know at least that uh, the mask that you got is legit and you're well protected. Excellent. Well, uh, I, are, I, you, are you hearing a car alarm in the background? I totally am. Oh, good. It just stopped, thankfully. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that's great. And, uh, you know, in order for us to get back to shooting, I think that for the time being, uh, everyone who isn't on camera is going to be wearing a mask. And so that's just that's just going to be life. So uh, who is on the show today? Alan Jacobson and Yancey Ford. They are awesome. Uh, They made a documentary called Strong Island together, and we actually did kind of a tag team interview with director and DP, which is something a little unusual. Strong Island. I wasn't there. I missed out. Strong Island was on Netflix, and then I believe it was taken off of Netflix, and now it is back on Netflix. And uh, Strong Island is a really cool, very personal documentary. I love a documentary that's so personal, and uh, it's so personal that even some of like the uh, they're not reenactments, but they're like they show photographs, and they came up with a really creative way of doing it that made it feel even more personal than the way you usually see it in movies. I kind of don't want to ruin it for anyone. I think I think people should. Definitely uh, seek out and check out Strong Island. It, it's it's really uh, a brilliant documentary, and it's it's very strong personal work. You've convinced me. I will totally see it. Do it. So, Ilya, what is our George Foyt close focus topic, which we have uh, we we have sworn a blood oath that unless there's new COVID nineteen related issues that we could cover that have to do with production, we have to come up with a non COVID nineteen related close focuses. Close foci. That, that's foci? right. That's right. Foci. Foci. 
foci. Uh, yes, uh, Ben Katz will be just cutting out anything that says COVID-19 in the future. It'll yeah. just be gone. It'll be like a swear jar. <laughs> we gone. do. We do yeah. need a COVID-19 swear jar. So, no, but but it's a pledge we're making to our listeners that we're going to keep doing close focus somehow and that we're going to highlight topics related to production that don't have to do with pandemics Unless there's new developments, yeah, that's right. They'll, they'll be very pleased to know this. I think they'll be if, pleased to know if the COVID nineteen if if, if yeah. the COVID nineteen virus decides that it wants to direct movies, then we will cover it again. <laughs> but in the meantime, you can keep tuning in, and yeah, we're not going to just randomly talk about COVID. So instead, we're going to talk about the Oscars, the Academy, diversity. I mean, that's the that's our close focus today. It's a really interesting thing. So there were two recently two press releases, I guess, that came out from the Academy Award. Now, if you're listening to this and you're not really clued in, uh, the Academy Awards usually aren't until February. So why are we talking about it now? I mean, like even the movies that would be coming out right now in general are not the Oscar contender movies right now. It's usually when we'd be, you know, watching uh Wonder yeah. Woman and stuff. Not that those aren't yeah, tent Oscar worthy, but yeah, they're the, the big, they're the ones that kind of keep the Oscar movies going. But, um, but there were two things and, and I think that they're both worth talking about. And one of them, I feel like we all have to kind of keep an eagle eye on the Academy to see if they follow through on their promise. So the first That's one, right. the first one is obvious and unfortunately slightly COVID-19 related because movie theaters are closed. The Academy announced that they're postponing the Oscars by two months. And uh, in addition to that, I believe they're saying that Oscar eligibility is also pushed back two months. Yes, that's correct. So that that makes general sense, because if we're able to get back to movie theaters, uh, we need to uh, be safe enough to do so. And it's always been an Academy uh, requirement that movies have to play in theaters f- uh, in within a distance of L.A. or New York, I believe, in, in, in for some period of time. And in fact, there was a scam Years ago, I had a short film called The Meeting, and I participated in this scam. And that was if you wanted your short film to be Oscar, uh, if you wanted to submit it to the Oscars, there were certain movie theaters, and I believe I did it at the Sunset Five, that is no longer what it was at the time, and they would put together groups of shorts and run them at like 4 o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday so you could say that you were Oscar qualified which I did, and you paid them money for it. And uh, my producer, uh, who you know, Jay Bogdanovich, and I went to our screening and literally were the only two people in the theater. Awesome. And you were qualified. And we were Oscar qualified. How did that work out? Um, <laughs> there, were, there were no one else doing that, too. You were the only one there. I was like, <laughs> no. hey, I want to go see my movie, uh, you know, on a 35 millimeter print. You kidding me? Go, go see it in a big screen. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Sunset Five is an awesome theater. Okay, so number one. Dates changing. Pay attention. There will be uh, the, lots of talk about this, I'm sure. Uh, this was just announced today in Variety. If you are hearing the sound of my voice, it's on the Variety site right now. You can go get all the details. Uh, also, the other big announcement from the Academy is a diversity initiative. A less specific thing. Like, we're moving the Oscars back two months. That's pretty specific. The diversity initiative, as you read their press release, it's a little unclear what it really means. A little unclear, but uh, Don Hudson, who is the current head of the Academy, she got some term limits today. It used to be an unlimited amount of time that you could you could serve after taking some hiatus. So it was like being on the Supreme Court. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. You, there were some restrictions, but essentially you could have an unlimited number of years that you did it. Now it is limited <laughs> to 12, and there's some ways that it's broken up, but the maximum you know, servitude that you can have in, in the grand poobah position, or I think maybe many of the elected positions is going to be 12 years 
And that's because uh, the oldsters are apparently keeping the Oscars uh, so white, so white, which uh, it is. We are at the five year anniversary of the Oscar so white push, which was fair. And uh, when you have situations like uh, what happened with Moonlight winning the Oscar, which was a couple years after that. But first, they announced that La La Land won. It was it was an error. I, I have to. It admit, was an error. I have to admit that will always be my favorite moment of the Oscars because it's the only real drama I've ever seen during the Oscars. It's pretty spectacular, actually. It is a. Yeah. Pre- I mean, it holds up well. If you watch that moment now on YouTube, no. it, it, it holds up great. You watch it, it's like, like what just? I mean, I was watching it live, and and I remember. I'm I'm not I'm not trying to crap on La La Land at all, but. <laughs> I was sort of like I, I was I was I was pushing for Moonlight and they announced La La Land and I was like, eh, yeah, you know, I get it. And uh, and then I, I remember like so, suddenly you saw someone like run through the background or something like that. And then there was a, a whole fracas and uh, and the fracas grew into a, a, a pandemonium. And then they they realized that they had made a mistake. I, and I feel like the Academy kind of in weird baby steps tries to do the right thing every time. But it it brings up a bigger question to me, which is like in the historical context, what do the Oscars really mean? You know, like Mm. what, what are the Oscars? I was looking back, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and we were kind of looking back at movies that had won the Oscar, you know, won the Academy award in the nineties. And, and, you know, so like a long time ago, but not 1922. And, uh, and, and it was just kind of interesting when you go like, oh, yeah, Braveheart won the Oscar. Like, you know, sometimes you look at it and go, oh, yeah, that's a movie that's still in the conversation. If it's uh, Unforgiven, for instance, you know, it's a movie that holds up really well. Dances with Wolves, eh, it doesn't hold up as well. Yeah, it's nothing against Dances with Wolves. It meant well, but it does. I don't think that that's a movie that would even get made today. You know, Silence of the Lambs. I, th- I would argue still as good today pretty much as it ever was. It's such a great movie. But it, it's kind of funny to me because I look at what wins the Oscars. I mean, even in the last decade, movies like The Artist won. And it's like, what did that winning say about our culture and the Oscars in general? And like, what does the artist mean to people? Or, you know, The King's Speech, some of these movies that win. And then kind of you forget that they ever existed. Even one that I, that I personally thought was amazing, Shakespeare in Love. You don't really hear anyone talking about Shakespeare in Love. It's you know written by Tom Stoppard. It's a pretty amazing film. Has a kick-ass cast, but like kind of vanishes. You know, I think that Oscars So White certainly has uh, its place as a movement, like Times Up and so many other things that the the Academy Awards have been used to to spotlight and bring relevance to ah, spotlight maybe, also one best picture Go that's on. true uh, to uh, a larger social issues going on in in america and our society but i think that when you look very myopically year by year and you go you count up like oh well you know how many uh, uh, artists of color got nominations this year it's it's really it's difficult to see progress being made but but my perspective is if you actually look back god 10 years 11 years if you look back just the last decade or so of the Academy Awards compared to, you know, decades before, I actually think we're really moving in the right direction. And I'm going to go all the way back to like 2009 Slumdog Millionaire. Slumdog Millionaire, fantastic movie, hardly a white person. in the. I don't think there's a white person in the movie, but yeah. I think it's like a white person behind the camera, though. But yeah, yeah white person behind the camera, incredibly talented white Two person. White people, the, in fact. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, you know, really, really, really fantastic movie. Um, what, one of those I, two white people is someone who we're desperate to get on the podcast. Anthony Dodd Mantle, <laughs> if you're listening to us. Anyway. Uh, 
All right. Now, now I'm totally derailed. Okay. So, so, sorry uh, about that. No, okay, no. I mean, so, I, I, I get what you're saying. Then, you know, uh, the artist, sure, filled with white people. But hey, a, a, a silent movie winning Best Picture. Which but, is, you know, then I also think about like Green Book and Green Book was like, <laughs> like I, I heard a, a story where they were talking about how in 1989, Spike Lee had Do the Right Thing and Driving Miss Daisy won Best Picture. Yeah. And then uh, last year, Green Book versus Black Klansman, they were both nominated and for Best Black Picture. Black Klansman was totally my pick. I really wanted yeah, it Black to Klansman was a pretty amazing <laughs> film. And driving and, and, and basically Green Book was Driving Miss Daisy with the driver and the passenger reversed. But it was sort of a weird white racial healing fantasy movie in a way. Like if you look at it as a fantasy movie. And it's not, it is so well-intentioned, but also at the same time pretty tone deaf. And in fact condemned by the family of the guy who the movie was about. Okay, well... We can all agree, though, at least I hope that we can all agree, at least uh, of the film fans of the true you film and I, fans I all, to, all of you and, and me can agree. You and me can agree. But I think the, the larger film society, the film critics out there, Parasite winning was a massive, massive, fantastic referendum mm-hmm. on the state of cinema. And it didn't have to be white people and white people even speaking in, or, you know, speaking English or speaking yeah. any other, you know, we had a, in a, a full Asian cast and a. God damn it. It was the best movie. I, I loved that movie. It was, such it was a, great a great movie. movie. That, that, that I, movie's incredible. I agree. I mean, I actually think it was a banner year. So it, it's not one of those years where like I look at the list and I'm like, eh, you know, like there were a few, there were several. I, I was still, no, there was a lot of good stuff. I was still pushing for Jojo Rabbit, even though I loved it, that and Parasite. I, I just thought they were both really amazing no, films. I mean, well, uh, I, I'm because something like Parasite wins. Uh, I do think that opens up the I think it opens it up to so many more possibilities now that there are 10 official 10, you know, best picture. Oh, nominees, that's another thing, too. Like, yeah, it, 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 they, they codified it now. It's not that's between right. five and 10. It is. There will be 10 nominees. There will be 10 nominees. Yeah, uh, this is going to be a really interesting year. We'll we'll see what sort of stuff uh, comes out. I mean, stuff that was probably shot a long time ago now and has been in post-production for a long time. But yeah, it'll be an interesting, it'll be an interesting batch of movies when they finally do get finalized and put out into the world. And then the nominees, it'll, yeah, it'll be, it'll be very interesting this time next year. I think the important thing for us all to remember, and we need to remember it through the Oscars this year and next year and moving forward, for those of us who do believe that diversity is a good thing, and we want to see more diverse artists. And and frankly, we want to see more diverse diverse artists even get the opportunity to make films that could be Oscar worthy films, you know, because it, it really starts with that. It's not just about how it's not the Oscars can't decide what got made. They're only choosing the movies that were made and released. So, of course. so it starts with people realizing that there's good business and good art in making movies uh, from these people, you know, from groups that don't have that voice as much as uh, white dudes like you and me. So we, we just have to hold the Academy to account. We need to remember that they said this and make sure that it's not lip service, you know, and, and call them out if it is. Um, Agreed. I'm sure there are people who will. I'm sure they'll be called. Out Absolutely. By the way, this is kind of a side note, but uh, I, I kind of wanted to bring it up before we even go into the interview. And that was after we had spoken to Bradford Young, I was uh, looking on Amazon and Selmo is on Amazon. Actually, there's a whole series of movies about African-American culture that are basically free on Amazon Prime if you have it right now. And I had seen Selma years ago, but I watched it again last week. And it was like when I saw it the first time, it felt kind of like a time capsule. 
because in my mind, of course, like that, you know, happened, you know, in the 1960s, <laughs> watching it again today in the midst of the protests and all BLM. the, all, yeah. the in, all the insane stuff that's going on in the world and all the people who are protesting the police brutality and all that stuff. It was like watching something. It was almost like watching people wearing different clothes, but going through what I'm watching people go through on television today. And Bradford Young's uh, cinematography is just absolutely astonishing and amazing and, and, and brutal and in your face. And uh, I can't recommend enough to people that they, uh, if even if they already saw Selma, it's such a well-made movie. To me, it rises above a lot of the, you know, so-called docudramas that you'll ever see. They really humanize the characters and you feel like you really know them. But then when they get to the brutality stuff, they do not hold back. And it really connected, it connected with me more now because I feel like the world, unfortunately, looks more like it did then <laughs> than, it, than it has in, in a long time and I think a lot of people would say well it, it's always looked that way I just didn't have to look at it and uh, and and I think that movies like this are are a bomb for that moment a B-A-L-M bomb they're helpful yeah. the salve yeah yeah unguent <laughs> yeah, so ointment of course uh, okay well I think we should get to the interview and then we'll come back and we'll we'll chat some more all right, well, here is our interview with Yancey Ford and Alan Jacobson. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, so I'm here with director Yancey Ford and cinematographer Alan Jacobson of the documentary, which has premiered recently on Netflix called Strong Island. Huge, huge hit documentary. Won an award at Sundance and then was nominated for an Oscar. So, you know. Pretty, pretty big deal. It's an extremely intimate documentary about uh, Yancey's brother who was murdered in 1992 and kind of an ongoing uh, struggle to kind of find out what happened to him and, and try and seek any justice in the case. So uh, I guess I'm going to start. This is the first time we've ever had a director and a DP on here. So we'll be feeling our way through it a little bit. But because we're talking about cinematography, I, I, f- I feel like we still need to get a little bit of context about the film because the film is so intimate and so personal to you. So if you could introduce the film and tell us when did it occur to you to make this into a movie because it was you know a personal tragedy in your family when did it occur to you that that a documentary needed to be made out of it so about 15 years after my brother's death it occurred to me that the film that I had always thought about making when I was an art student um, and and then post-graduation which is when my brother died was actually possible for me so Strong Island looks back at two things it looks at my brother's death and the, the self-defense claim that was made by the, by the man who killed him. And it asks a question about reasonable fear and who gets to decide what reasonable fear um, is justified. So Strong Island looks back at two things. It looks back at my brother's murder in 1992 and asks the question about whose fear is reasonable when used to justify homicide. And it also looks back at the effects that my brother's death had on my family. So it's sort of a a two-track film thematically, but, you know, within that world, um, a lot of other things sort of come into play, like family and history and and geography. So it's it's really, it starts in my family, but it sort of spirals out as a film to be about larger issues. So before we even start talking to Alan about it, I mean, Alan, feel free to chime in, but it's like, you're telling the story that's outrageously personal and you're like in the personal spaces of like you're in your mother's house in what appears to be your mother's kitchen you're looking through these very personal family photos how do you go about making a decision uh, because it is it's an aesthetic decision 
about a, a really personal situation. How do you go about making that decision of who's the person who I'm going to partner with to help me figure out the visuals? You know, the process of figuring out who was going to shoot Strong Island with me was sort of multi-tiered. Alan and I actually share a mutual friend, uh, the director, Marshall Curry. And um, I was talking to Marshall about the kind of cinematographer that I wanted to work with, someone who would be open to sort of an ongoing collaboration, who would really want to, you know, engage with these sort of esoteric goals that I had as a director. And he suggested Alan to me, both as someone who was really experienced as as a cinematographer, but someone who also had a really great reputation of working really closely with directors. And that's that's essentially how we met. Yeah, I think Marshall, uh, through our work, I had made two movies with Marshall at that point understood that I was somebody who really kind of liked to go deep and um, try to really meet the director where the director's at and really spend the time to think about and develop and refine and then enforce the director's vision to um, create a language that allowed us to talk, which um, Yancey is a first-time filmmaker, but who's someone who, as an artist and an artistic background, had a sense of what he wanted to see, but we were able to work together to kind of verbalize what that might be and what that might mean. So I think the fact that we were both ready to really spend time talking about that and develop that was uh, why we uh, figured we could work together really well. So uh, we've talked to a lot of cinematographers and we're always talking to them about the relationship that they have with the director and how they go about creating a visual language. And again, I read some interviews with the two of you, and so I, I understand that like a lot of a lot of the times it was just the two of you shooting yeah. shooting the stuff. How much talking, how much discussion went into kind of the aesthetic that you were going for with the film before you even started rolling? Uh, a lot. Thank you for saying we were making fast decisions, but uh, I think <laughs> I think what was really unique about this project and what was so such a treasure for me about it was that we were Yancey had created a, an environment where we could really make slow decisions where we mm-hmm. could really spend the time at the beginning just talking about not just what the film wanted to look like, but what the film should feel like in a very kind of uh, open and abstract way, not even getting into specific of what it might look like, but just what the intent and hope that Yancey was... And the, and of these complicated ideas that are non-filmable, how do you film these... How do you film loss or injustice or, you know, these very systemic concepts that we were going to try to put a visual to that are kind of unfilmable. So being able to have that time to really talk those things out. And then um, and then even when we were in production, we had the luxury of a schedule where we could go out and because it was just the two of us, we could spend six hours setting up some shots, one shot, spend four hours doing four versions of it. And then we could and we load it in the computer, play it back and decide that's the one we want. And then we would go back and and shoot that one shot. And we might shoot just a handful of shots in one day. Mm. Well, in the process, correct me if I'm wrong, was about 10 years to make the film from start to finish. From start to finish, Strong Island was about 10 years, you know, if you count when other people came on board mm-hmm. um, to make to make the film. I, I had been working on it for about two years prior to anyone else's involvement. Alan, we were in principal photography for about six and a half, maybe seven years. Wow. And, you know, that's, and, and if you think about you know, the, the sort of the core of the story is that we're approaching people who haven't shared their experience of this of this murder for 15 years. Right. And all of those people are 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 somehow related to me or or in, intimately involved in some aspect of my brother's life. So, you know, before we 
went to interview these people before we went to, you know, the house as a location, we really talked about just sort of as, you know, as filmmakers, what kind of film we were both interested in making. And I was interested in making, you know, I would I, I would use like various really aggressive words like blistering. And, you know, like I, I wanted I wanted the film to feel like your like your skin was being pulled back in a way. Like mm-hmm. there's a visceral quality to living with a murder that I really wanted the film to um, to hold. And so talking about that as well as talking about palettes for each character the setup for my character, the, the way that the neighborhood was going to be shot, the way that the house was, was actually being shot as a character, the way that we would shoot all of the sort of environment, you mm-hmm. know, the, and, and what it meant to be in the outside space versus what it meant to be in the inside space. All of those decisions and all of those choices were things that we talked about um, in advance. And, and, you know, the luxury of working with, you know, as a two-person team and, yeah. and asking Alan to essentially run A and B camera Right. Like, I don't and know. If, were you running sound or was there another person uh, for that? No. Well, for interviews. Yes. Uh-huh. I'm not sure people realize that Alan in our shoots was a camera, B camera and sound. Oh, wow. When we were working alone. So it's, it's not just that Alan has an incredible conceptual mind. He has this sort of technical ability to maintain consistency across cameras that are in different parts of the location to make notes, you know, to the editor while the shooting is going on and also to talk to me about <laughs> whether or not we're getting what I think we are. And I, I know that that would probably never happen again in my career, but <laughs> but to have the... That could be your thing. <laughs> yeah, that could be my thing, working people into the ground. Um, <laughs> but, but really, you know, to have asked so much of Alan simply as a human being, and then to see what it means for a, a spectacular cinematographer to execute your ideas is, I mean, there's nothing more satisfying for me as a, as a director than to see these things that I thought I was never going to see on screen, on screen because of Alan. I was going to say, wow, I'm just going to leave the room and let Nancy do this. <laughs> this is, that is amazing. No, I mean, it was such a treasure for me to have this working relationship and the level of trust that Yancey was able to invite me into. Uh, it just is the, it's, it's a treasure of my life. So, yeah, creatively, it's great to be working at, at a high creative level and feel like, you know, we knew for seven and a half years that we were making something that was going to be pretty spectacular. But also being able to connect and befriend and be invited into the family. And, um, you know, it's, it's just, a, it's a really special and, you know, I, I, and I realize a unique uh, situation, but yeah, it's just really great. So Yancey comes to you with this very personal, tragic story, and you're having to break it into a series of aesthetic choices to create this language. So how do you take something so personal and break it into these aesthetic rules, you know, as, as a cinematographer would? If I remember right, part of the aesthetic start of the film was, I think, an attempt by Yancey to try to almost limit the exposure, the emotional exposure to the story, mm-hmm. which... You know, I totally get and respect it. And that was, I think, a really good place to start in terms of in our first... What, you mean to limit his emotional exposure to the story? Yes, our first conversations were about creating an interview frame that enforced a certain distance and a certain rigor around these emotional stories. Mm -hmm. And uh, that led to the fundamental framing of the interviews, which is kind of a wide, um, low frame where where the subjects are center framed. 
given authority in their frame, but there's a certain distance there. That, are, are they looking mostly down the barrel too? Yeah, very close to it. Mm-hmm. The um, We started by using an eye direct to get right down the barrel. Mm-hmm. And then we determined that because we were far enough away that it was a worthy trade-off to have direct eye contact mm-hmm. without the eye direct, just right next to the lens. I find that when you're more than uh, about eight feet away from the camera, about 10 feet away, the, you can get the eye lines close enough to the lens that you don't need an eye direct. And for people who, who aren't aware, like an eye direct is, is what? Eye direct is kind of a non-electronic interatron. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a mirrored box where the subject can look into the directly into the camera lens, but sees reflected in a half-silvered mirror the image, the a reflected image of the interviewer. So the subject is seeing the interviewer's eyes. You're getting direct eye contact. Yeah. But the lens is also on the same eye line. So it's it's a, a way to stack the subject's eye line directly into the lens while maintaining eye contact. And the Aterotron obviously being the Errol Morris's device to using uh, two teleprompters to do kind of the same right. thing. He, yeah, he does the same thing, but with a video image. Uh, mm. It's like so. two, it's two teleprompters just right. kind of looking into each other. Could you both talk about like how, intimacy and, and like how, how important was intimacy in this whole thing? Because I, I really felt like I've watched a million zillion documentaries. I've rarely watched a documentary where I felt like I was like right in someone's life in, in, in the level that this one brought me into your life. So how was that a, a very conscious choice on your part? Intimacy was the thing that I realized was most important to Strong Island and the thing that as a director slash subject slash sibling was also one of the most difficult things about making the film. And when Alan references the initial aesthetic choices being about um, establishing sort of an emotional safe zone for me, you know, that's that's actually true. Like there were there were two things at work during the interviews. There was the fact that I was having conversations with people for the first time about these issues on camera. Like mm-hmm. there were no pre-interviews. There was no, you know, sort of conversations that happened outside of the shooting environment. So you literally hadn't talked to Kevin or some of the others since the incident. Literally hadn't talked to Kevin in probably 15 years. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, My sister and I hadn't talked about our individual experiences. My mother and I hadn't talked about our individual experiences. So part of what sort of brings you as a viewer so close to each character and to to their lives is the fact that they are actually opening up to me for the first time. Mm -hmm. And similarly, in my interviews, I'm talking about things that I've never talked about before. And that motif, that kind of dark void, uh, is the space where we created this kind of, this visual approach to trying to mirror what was an internal space for me, Mm -hmm. and trying to mirror, you know, the sort of contemplative space, and to give my character the space to sort of process things in real time. You know, I I could only hope that the intensity that I was feeling in the interviews would translate to an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that just seeing everything that Alan did, um, from the lens choices to the lighting choices, and, you know, the incredible thing for me also is, you know, sort of when I am the subject during the shooting, I get to see what my subjects, when I'm behind the cameras, see. So there was an entire, so I, I got to be on both sides of the camera, and that has deepened I think even further than I thought possible, my, my appreciation for what Alan was able to do. You know, and there, there are moments in the film 
where there are scenes that are super emotional for my character. Like when I'm talking to a detective for the first time. Oh, yeah. And he confirms a very long-held secret of mine. Alan is there. Some people, when they first saw that shot, they thought that I was by myself. And then it racks focus. And they realize, holy, like, holy shit, there's somebody else <laughs> in the room during this intense moment. And the truth is that for most of the time, like Alan could reach out and touch me. And that proximity is really the secret to the emotional tenor of the film and the taut kind of line that we were able to walk for you know all 107 minutes uh, of Strong Island. Yeah, and visually we tried to undergird that feeling of what of what was happening in the room. And I, for many of those phone calls and those very intense moments, I was literally three and a half feet away. And I know that because that's under the minimum focal distance of <laughs> the lenses we were on. And I had to use a lot of diopters. But um, being that close... Man, and intimacy, it just requires... It's diopters, man. It's, it's, diopters, all, about the, it's, it's all about diopters. The diopters. I use diopters that I bought in a thrift store 15 years ago for like 30 cents each or something. I got like, oh, wow. I got like a dozen for... Two dollars. Um, Intimacy uh, comes cheap. <laughs> I thought I, I'm never going to use these. It's like I'm glad I, I'm glad I bought these. Uh, I'm glad I bought these thirty year old diopters. Um, but we were that close, and it's true that so visually we're trying to underscore that intensity, mm-hmm. and that's why the camera the camera is not allowed to look away or exhale or take a breath. The camera doesn't pan or tilt, mm-hmm. um, and the duration and the sustained uh, intensity of the shots. You know, uh, we had a rule. One of our rules was every shot, we would shoot every shot, every B-roll shot for at least 60 seconds to give the editor that time to linger on a moment to really force the audience to go through the process of sitting with an image or sitting with a moment and uh, and not being able to look away. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think visually what we were trying to do was was create that sort of rigor uh, visually that would accurately represent the intensity of the moment. So um, the camera's not allowed to look away or take a break, and the audience is forced to sit with these moments, um, you know, like I was, and not be able to reach out and give you a hug or try to, you know, try to make it better. There's just no way to make these things better. So well, we it- force the audience to sit with that and to reckon with that. He, he was always oriented to what was in service of the film. Even though it was, you know, difficult, I think, as a, as a human being to obey the rules that we had established so clearly, it worked. And that's one of the things that, you know, as a director, gives me incredible confidence. Because, you know, having gone through all of the conversations that we did to get to the rules, to see that the rules pay off, yeah. it's huge. So what were the rules? You keep talking about the rules. Were, were there a specific set of rules or was it just kind of an ever-evolving decision process? Uh, There were literally a set of rules that were written down at some point. How many rules? You should talk about the rules. The the reason that I'm trying not to say anything is that the the rules are really embarrassing because the first rule is Yancey will never appear on camera. Oops, well, you broke that one. Yeah, I I broke that one. And I don't know what the hell I was thinking. Rules are made to be broken. You know, I think that... Was I like, was I thinking to myself, well, we'll shoot just in case and like, you know, and I always like triple mic'd everything. So there was, there was always redundant, redundant sound, which gave us this really rich sound world to, to work with as well. But I didn't want to be on camera. Right. So and for people who sucks. haven't seen it, 
uh, a, a continuing motif throughout the entire film is Yancey with uh, like a dark background yep. talking in a very tight close up talking right to the camera. Yeah, so actually, why don't we talk about how we got to that frame? Because not only did I completely blow my own spot by saying I wasn't going to be on camera, we yeah. had, like... We will I'm return to this rule situation because I want to know about the rules. Super, super, super close up. <laughs> rule number rule number one was Yancey will never appear in the film. Rule number two will that, was that there will be no close-ups in the film. <laughs> <laughs> and so this shot that we're talking about is the... Uh-huh. Total antithesis of that. And that is why I've, you know, I'm a real proponent of <laughs> rules or limitations. Not because it's going to be a rule that's Im- immutable and never going to be challenged, but be- exactly because it is something that can then be challenged. So um, you establish a rigor about something, and then you have this incredible potential to break that rule mm-hmm. when you need it in your storytelling or in your edit, and it has this incredible power. So um, I think this idea of limiting, limiting, limiting the palette to a certain very carefully and meaningful, intentional things creates an, an amazing opportunity to then push against those rules uh, yeah. later in the film. Now, those two rules that Yancey won't appear in the film and there will be no close-ups in the film, we worked on those rules for four and a half years. Mm-hmm. So since you had this rule of no Yancey on camera and no close-ups, how and when did the decision come about to have Yancey almost as, uh, I don't want to call it a Greek chorus? It felt like I was sitting in the room with him and he was spilling his guts in, in a very emotional way through the whole thing, and I was able to feel his outrage and all that. So I think it was a brilliant stroke for you as filmmakers, but what made you decide to break that rule? The very first time that the Yancey won't be on camera rule was broken was, I think, so we shot the the family photos twice, mm-hmm. right? We shot them once when I, you know, sort of used a C three hundred as a, an expensive copy stand, um, and that sh- that shoot, you know, I had these I had these photographs. I'd bring them into frame, you know, I'd I'd sort of position them and then I move them out of frame again. Yeah, and it was you know we were in the conference room at Alan's office building and you know I was sort of involved in looking at these photographs for the first time. And I didn't realize that all the while I had been sitting there, you know, in very sort of immersed in this world of, of the family photographs, Alan had set himself up on the B camera in the corner on a super lo- on a long lens. And he was sneaking these shots of me. <laughs> and I was like, what? wait, so you broke the rule first. So he broke the rule first. Uh, but then first when, blood. when, you know, when, when we were looking at the rushes and people were like, oh my God, this is incredible. I was like, God damn it. Like, <laughs> and, and of course, like I look at that footage and all I see is the shirt that I'm wearing, which is covered with little pineapples. And I wore the pineapple shirt because I knew I wasn't going to be on camera. Uh-huh. But at the very beginning of the film, like the very first shots of me moving my, my mother at 16 years old in what I refer to as the Warhol shot, I'm wearing the goddamn like pineapple shirt because Amra, because Alan was stealing shots on the B camera and that was the first that was the mm-hmm. first time we broke the rule and I don't even remember how we decided to start shooting my interviews the way we, that we did guilty I did I did sneak into that but you know it was fascinating seeing the the interplay on Yancey's face of experiencing these photos for the first time in a long time and just the process of revisiting you know I could just tell that there was a lot going on and I thought it, you know, it's fascinating. So, 
pineapple shirt be damned. <laughs> pineapple shirt be damned. And I remember thinking like, well, it's so interesting to me what's happening here in the room. I, maybe I can just shoot this as as kind of like some BTS, you know, behind the scenes material for, you know, the, you know, making of. And, and, mm-hmm. and we had the 5D there. So I was just shooting, clicking some pictures, like literally be behind the scenes stuff. And um, at some point I rolled a little bit of video and uh, rolled some more and realized how amazing some of these shots were getting again with the diopters getting in really close on Yancey's eyes from a low angle I put a mirror flat on the table and shot down into the mirror so that I could see up get a really low angle up into the eyes oh that's cool um, because you know you can only get so low with the lens before the tabletop gets in the way of uh, yeah the eye line and you know and because Yancey was looking kind of straight down at the tabletop shooting into the mirror really helped and created a really interesting thing and combined with the diopters which shift your infinity point closer to the camera so and at the same time create a kind of a weirdly compressed limited depth of field and create some distortion and abstraction around the edges of the frame um, these close-ups of the eyes and in Yancey's face were really I thought really compelling and beautiful and because the process that was happening behind the eyes was so interesting and, and so rooted in our story that we were trying to tell, I, I got sucked into shooting more of that than I was supposed to. And then I kind of accidentally forgot to separate that footage out to the behind the scenes pile and it went to the editor and then the editor saw it and then the editor kind of, I think, quietly put an edit together with some of that footage mm-hmm. so that then when we saw that footage back, we were like, I think Yancey's reaction was like, God damn this has got to be in the movie, <laughs> which, you know, again, this is the power of, of having limitations that you can then push against. If we had done that right from the beginning, I don't think it would have had that same power. And we might not have learned the power that it did have. We might have just done it more too casually, and it might not have had the authority that it had in the edit room of how much power that new footage had when it was fresh. Mm-hmm. Four and a half years in, we finally figured out a way to get some of that in and by then we had had a trust Yancey had a comfort with the material and it was the right way to start to get to into that which kind of led to the ultimate interviews that we did with Yancey where Yancey ended up being framed in an incredibly tight shot speaking directly to the camera in this black void in a very kind of intimate and confrontational space which was so opposite of the rule we had established with with everyone else um, again I think it's it's the power of having a ch- making a choice, sticking with it, establishing that as a pattern for your audience, and then deciding to uh, subvert it, you know, in a meaningful way. It has to have a meaning, and I think that meaning was that we we were pulling the audience into Yancey's mind, into Yancey's thinking space, because this was a turmoil that had been going through your head for years. This trying to figure out these answers to things that don't want to be answered. So visually being able to pull the audience into that space, I think was really powerful. Well, that makes sense because it's not, the movie isn't, uh, it's very personal and it doesn't feel journalistic from a, from a remove the way that even something like the Joe Berlinger, Bruce Sanofsky documentaries feel like someone's, you know, like they're not in the movies because it didn't happen to them. But this happened to you, so so it makes sense that you would want to inject your your point of view in it, and even your the choice that the two of you made of like how to present photographs. It feels like we're looking through your eyes, like we're seeing hands, like they could be our hands, but they're your hands moving photographs in and out of the frame. So so 
the movie feels designed to feel like we're in your head already. Definitely. I've come to this term. I've seen the film now many more times than I had ever anticipated. And it really it really occurs to me that it's it's a type of personal archaeology. Yes. That um, that we were engaging in. And I think that when we were in my mother's office, for example, or when mm-hmm. both both when she was alive and after she passed, we were literally digging through bins of paper, you know, like everything in my mother's life that she, that was painful for her went into the quote unquote office across the hall from her bedroom, which not ironically was my my brother's first bedroom um, in the house where my parents moved to in 19, the end of 1972. So when we were in that room with her and when we were in that room alone, there was a very careful, deliberate excavation of every piece of paper because I didn't want to miss anything. I was mostly looking for images. So if we were in the office, when we were in the attic, we were just in, engaged in this in this intense process of archaeology. And when you do that about someone's life, when you do that about someone's family, and when you do that about someone's death, you essentially get all of these incredibly complicated layers that because of the consistency of of the shooting, we were able to, you know, sort of seamlessly weave together, you know, into this thing that was, I think, greater than I had anticipated. Yeah, the photographs evolved into a really powerful device, I think, again, because we realized that by controlling the presentation of the photographs in the same way that visually we were controlling what the audience is allowed to see, mm-hmm. there was this extra layer of performance almost with the way Yancey was, would present the photographs to the, into the frame and move them about, put them together, make connections between them. In the sense that you're not just seeing a uh, omniscient, you know, pan and scan archival photograph that is exactly what you're supposed to be hearing about, but there's a there's an interpretation there happening in front of you where you understand you're being you're being presented certain things by Yancey in a way that you know helps take you into that process. So, you know, the idea of seeing the manipulations was a really powerful one that um, we'd started the idea. I was always I had always been inspired by some of the photo work that was in that film uh, Dogtown and Z Boys, Stacey mm-hmm. Peralta's documentary, where the images they started off as kind of standard copy stand shots, and then a hand would come in and rip something out. And so I think that was part of the inspiration there. But when we saw that footage back and realized how how much opportunity there was there for an extra layer of insight and emotionality to the way the pictures were moved, yeah, um, it was really powerful. And you know, a lot of people really responded to that. Well, it's interesting because there's any number of ways that you could do this this kind of stuff. And, you know, the standard way would be to, like, scan in those photographs and move around them, and it would be very effective. But it's more effective and more personal the way you do it. And I think that it, it's hopefully an inspiration to other filmmakers, too, who are thinking about it. Like, how differently could I present archival materials in a way that feels personal and specific to this film? Because somebody else doing that same thing wouldn't work unless it worked for that film. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, again, all this is rooted in like everything we try to do visually in the film. Everything is rooted in a emotionality and a, and, 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 a, and a storytelling. And there's, I think, a, a much more profound level happening there when those pictures are being presented that way, because you actually there's parts where you see Yancey making connections between the photographs that was happening in real life when you were going through these piles. And there were thousands of photos. I mean, it was we did this for hours and hours and days, I mean, multiple days of shooting just the photos. So the process of Yancey culling and making connections and, being, and you know, shooting one photo and then two weeks later 
you'd find another picture from that same day in another sack and bring and where was that other photo and bring that back and put them together and realize there's a story between the two letting the audience see that curation happening on screen i think is a whole nother level beyond just um you know using an archival as a way to illustrate a story it was um you you the audience gets the experience of the reconstruction of this family that had been ignored and torn apart in the original investigation so can i ask you uh, both of you this question the discipline that it takes so that f- from the beginning of of alan coming on to the show to the completion was eight years correct mm-hmm. what kind of because like obviously you're living your lives like like this isn't your full-time job for eight years right. what part of your life is it for those eight years to be making this film because obviously it, it when you're there you're focused on it you're you're really making it it, it, I don't know. I'm only encountering it as someone watching the final product. So I don't know if there were times where it was like, maybe there, maybe I'm going to abandon it and, and, and move on with my life or like what, or was it, what, what was the process of, of staying on a, a film for eight years? That's insane. Uh, amount of commitment in my opinion. I, I knew that we were doing something special. So, and I knew that the way that we were going to make the film was going to be the power of the film. So, I knew that the schedule that the film would take was going to be what the film needed. So um, we came up, I mean, just technically we came up with an agreement that when we knew that there were days that had to happen because there was an event happening or something, we would prioritize that and clear the schedule. But then there were other things that we needed to go out to the house at some point and get some shots. Yancey was kind enough to kind of let me slot that into my schedule in a, mm-hmm. on, a, on a free day that week where I wasn't doing something else. So there was a way, there was um, kind of a two-tiered system of priority there where I didn't have to drop everything all the time, um, but it allowed me to stay open to you know following the schedule where it needed to go. Good thing about a documentary is that because you're following a story and the story is leading the schedule, uh, there's often a lot of kind of leapfrogging. I can I can leapfrog in and out of other projects um, mm-hmm. while documentaries are kind of shooting sp- sporadically throughout the year. And there were some years where we shot 40 days in a year, and there were some some years where we shot you know a half dozen days, kind of toward the end when it was more editing than shooting. So the flexibility of that just logistically was something we worked out. And it was a great gift because, again, letting the film tell us when we needed to shoot instead of the other way around is a real luxury. And I think it leads to better art because you're not forcing the story into a schedule. And it's something I try to bring to projects now where at least having the flexibility to be open to uh, splinter shoots or, uh, you know, pickup days that can be used in a way that, you know, or you can keep a camera in your trunk so that when you're driving to set, you can yeah. stop and get that sunrise shot, um, you know, on the way, things like that. Well, and early in the thing, when I said that you were able to work faster, I think what I meant was more nimbly because nimbly, because yeah, there's yeah. only two of you really in, involved in yeah. most decisions. That's exactly it. And at some point we invested in a camera and then we didn't have to go through, you know, renting and, and all of yeah. that. We would get specialized gear when we needed it. And Yancey had the sound recording equipment. Yep and would set it up himself and so yeah nimble nimble is a good way to do it um and then i you know i like to cross-pollinate my work with different genres anyway so i'm doing commercials in between doc shoots and i'm doing some television and i'm doing narrative shoots um i really like to kind of have the real spectrum of of styles i feel like they cross-pollinate each other where i can take my you know my commercial rigor you know that Every shot has to be perfectly boarded and executed. Bring that to documentary and a film like this to really, you know, help uh, understand the power of that kind of thinking versus, you know, bringing my documentary instincts and spontaneity 
into commercial world sometimes. Mm-hmm. So like, I think it's really good for cinematographers to have a kind of broad palette of working styles, um, or or it's just that I'm too ADD to uh, <laughs> focus on one damn thing. You know, one of the things that was really an incredible experience for me as a director was when I would talk to Alan about stuff, and then, you know, a day or two later, I would get an email with, you know, sort of stills as comps, right? And so when we were trying to figure out exactly how we wanted to shoot, you know, me on the ground at the garage where my brother was shot, we talked a lot about the lighting. And my my point of reference was, was Gregory Crutzen for that. But Alan brought in six or seven or eight other, both photographers and, you know, moments from other films. And it was essentially like, okay, when we were talking about, like, just take a look at these, right? And let's just first, let's do a first pass and call what you like from what you don't like. And then let's talk about what you do like from the things that you've selected. And he was able to explain to me as a director, like what it was about those shots that made them so special. And then we sort of put them through our process and and the rules and also what our goals were aesthetically for the film. And, you know, for me to have the opportunity to work with someone whose experience is, is informed by so many things. Just for me, made the experience as a, as a director richer, and I think the film is is so much, it's like the sum of its parts, mm-hmm. right? And so the cinematography is really a sum of, you know, the parts, and, and my collaboration with Alan is only one part of that, right? Everything else that you see is like, yes, it's the team and the upward and downward motion, but, you know, it's it's what happens when you find the right person for your project. And the fact that Alan was that person is, you know, for me, it was an incredible, incredible uh, gift. Well, I think that's a great place for us to leave it. Um, before we go, firstly, we want to encourage anyone listening to this who has access to Netflix to go watch Strong Island on Netflix right away. Other than that, uh, where can people find the two of you online? So you can you can follow me on Twitter at the letter Y and then my last name Ford, F-O-R-D, or at Strong Island Doc. And that's the best way to, to follow what I'm up to. And yeah, the, the film is on Netflix and in, they've been a great partner in pushing the film out into the world. So um, we're really happy that we're on that platform. Uh, I'm on my website, alanjax.com. It's A-L-A-N-J-A-X. And uh, on Instagram is alanjax7, the number seven. Cool. Well, uh, thank you both so much for coming here. And I uh, can't wait to talk to you after you make your next film together. Yeah, neither can I. Yes, exactly. We'd love to be back. Thanks for having us. All right, so that was Alan Jacobson and Yancey Ford. Thank you both for coming on. I look forward to seeing any of your collaborations or anything either of you do separately in the future. Hey, Ben, it is bill paying time. I like paying bills. I actually hate paying bills. I have to wear that stupid, weird green hat and, you know, sit at my desk. and You wear a green hat for paying bills? Yeah, you know, with the like the weird little visor. Never mind. Homer Simpson did it once. It's, it's a like joke. a bank visor. Yeah, it's yeah, like something a, like that. Yeah, yeah, it's either that or you're dealing at at, at poker. So playing some Texas Hold'em. <laughs> you know me. You know me in the Texas Hold'em. <laughs> uh, hey, uh, I want to talk about Aperture and a really cool light that has. I think that they've that has been overlooked lately. They made it a couple of years ago now. It's called an ALMW. Just rolls off the tongue. ALMW. Alm. The light. But the cool thing about the ALMW is it works underwater. You know. What? Yes, exactly. It works underwater. It's it's pretty incredible. It is a daylight only light. It doesn't uh, change colors, but you can take it 
anywhere. It's rugged. It's built like a tank and it's really inexpensive. Uh, oh, and it comes with a little um, silicone cover. So it's nice and diffuse. So uh, if you are a YouTuber vlogger type of person and you just need an, a light that is good any any time of day, anywhere, any when, and it's going to be rough and tumble, rechargeable. You throw it in your bag, you pull it out. You're not messing with any knobs for adjusting color temperature or anything like that. Just turn it on and boom, there you go. The ALMW available at Hot Rod Cameras, and uh, I believe it's under 150 bucks. I think that uh, there must be some YouTubers who do underwater work. There must be somebody with a good underwater YouTube channel. There, there are, and I think there's actually quite a few people who are doing sort of like home videography in their own sort of like koi pond and uh, you know coral reefs and stuff like that. You wouldn't believe how big the uh, the online community is now for people who are home aquarianophiles. Interesting. YouTube is such a weird phenomenon. I stumbled recently with my son across a series of YouTube videos that are all just people doing massive domino uh, competitions. Domino rallies. Nice. Millions of dominoes falling. And my son, who is two now, will just sit there and watch these things for like 25 minutes as they just wreck dominoes. And he'll he'll make sounds like as as the big ones fall over. It's pretty (laughs) amazing. YouTube is strange. YouTube is strange, but it's got all kinds of uh, it's all got, got kind of like semi surreal sort of stuff that's going on. Have you watched um, last week tonight's uh, big, big plug lately? Uh, marble racing. Have you ever seen marble racing? Uh, we did show him some marble racing. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. Yeah. But he, he prefers dominoes and actually is will call for them by name in as much as he can say the word domino, which he's getting closer. But, you know, nice. he's two. cut him some slack. He's two. And now, short ends. So, so I take it that marble racing is not your uh, obsession of the week. Then, what is your Mar- your short end? Marble race. Okay, so my short end this week was something that was recommended to me to check out by our very own Kaze Alatracci, the Whoa. composer of all of our music. And it's a YouTube channel, uh, also a YouTube channel. It's called Pony Smasher. Hmm. What is Pony Smasher? I don't it's, know. It is director David F. Sandberg and Annabelle Creation. And what he does is he has, uh, so he's a for real theatrical big time movie director. And he makes, he still makes like little no budget shorts in his spare time. And he does these videos that show you how to do all the stuff he does. There's a really good one that it's like the first uh, one, if you go to his thing, I think it's just the most recent called, it's a video called filmmaking tools I use and even cheaper alternatives. And for anyone who's thinking about starting out making their first short, or if you're like me and you're working on your 9 millionth short and you're an old man, it's just chock full of really cool, simple ideas. Some, some more complex than others, but it's like how he did stuff on no budget. And, you know, what a lot of people maybe remember about him is that he made a short called Lights Out that the feature was based on that was like a crazy no budget horror short that scared the shit out of everybody. I can't tell you how many people sent me Lights Out. The short's great, and we will put a link in the show notes in case you have missed it. It's completely worth watching. It's only like 90 seconds, yeah. and yeah, it's, watch it's it. It's amazing, and then, and it got him, I mean, that's what got him into feature films. Anyway, I, I would just recommend that anyone, pretty much in almost any discipline, but especially directors, DPs, or people interested in visual effects, go check out Pony Smasher, and maybe even go to Kay's Alatraxi at musicbykays.com and uh, send him an email and say, hey, Ben uh, recommended Pony Smasher on your recommendation. Good, Good on you. Nice. I think that is a uh, an excellent recommendation, and I look forward to checking that out. Yeah, I, I, I think you'll think dig that it. Many of our 
yeah, I think many of our listeners will like that too. Hey, you know, this is a first for me. Uh, my uh, short end this week is actually a camera from the company Red. <gasps> from you? I know. I know oh from me. God. I, I mean, people should know that your history with Red. I mean, like you, you sell Red products at, at Hot Rod. I do. I sell Red products and I think that they make some really good cameras. But, but I, I, you know, I've, I, I just want to point this out. And I know we've spoken about this on the podcast. When Red came out, you were working for a company called Dalsa that had a brand new 4K camera called the Dalsa yes. Origin. That was a yes, really, we were really exciting. We were the, like the cutting it. We were the team. This We were the team that invented the 4K digital cinema camera. That's what was going on. And Red came along with a little inexpensive version of a 4K camera that you could buy. And our camera was only for rent. So, you know, in many ways, Red got the benefit of eating our lunch. A lot of the trailblazing that we got to that we that we did early on. Uh, Red got to come along and uh, and have a, a, a slightly clearer path ahead. And to be fair, yeah. the Dalsa Origin, which did make startlingly brilliant images, especially for its time. It was about the size of a Sherman tank. Like it was a big old camera. And I would it's it's closer to like an apartment size refrigerator. Yeah. Really, and that's what and, it was. Uh, <laughs> And whereas red at the time was a much smaller size of a football, I would say it was like the size of a medium sized Pontiac from the 1970s. I I've held a red one recently and I was like, man, you forget how giant these were. Yeah, that thing was pretty. It was big a lot bigger. I remember going to NAB, I think with you yeah. and we saw we went to the red booth before the red existed and they basically just had like a fiberglass mock up of it and people were waiting online to look at it. But everyone was pissed off. Yeah, there was a little bit of, um, I will say, uh, broken hearts and disappointment because I think people came really expecting to see a lot and they didn't quite see it then. But, you know, speaking of big cameras, uh, Red has actually come out with, is come out now with their smallest camera. They've come out with a camera that is smaller than any camera they've made before. And that's saying something because they make yeah, no, they're, pretty they're small more recent cameras. cameras are, are very moderately sized. I, mean, I even say starting with like the Epic and the Scarlet, those were pretty small cameras. I, I can't tell you exactly off the top of my head what size it is, but it pretty much looks like a four inch cube. So if you can imagine four inches by four inches by four wow. inches, I think that's about what it is. And it's going to premiere at about $7,000. It will actually get a little bit cheaper after the first sort of like batches go out. And actually over at Hot Rod, we have a an interest list. Essentially, if you uh, if you were really interested in this camera, you could be, have, be one of the very first people to get it if you get on our interest list. Red didn't want anyone to call it a pre-order list. They wanted to call it something else but regardless our interest list uh, has got a few names on it and uh, they're going to start shipping soon and it is there's some footage that's hitting the internet now it looks really good what size sensor not very expensive it's got a super 35 sensor and it's got a a canon rf mount which means it's adaptable to just about everything and uh, including canon and including pl and it runs off a couple of uh, canon uh, bpa batteries on the back it's like it's got a little tiny monitor built in, but it's like, yeah, the whole thing is super tiny. And what's and the resolution on that sucker? I think it's about 6K. I'll have to double really? check what it, what it is now. But so, yeah, it's got a lot of resolution. It's got a big sensor. It's not very expensive. It's got very much the red look. And for the people out there, I think red is actually really smart about this. They saw certain sort of like Chinese manufacturers, sort of like lower end, lower quality manufacturers come, starting to imitate their cosmetics, the, the sort of like style and design and modularity. And I'm 100% sure that every single one of those customers for those those cameras out there, those those sort of knockoff style cameras that have the styling of red, but not the performance, 
if you had offered them a red camera at a more similar price, uh, they would have all just gone red. They all would have bought red. So this camera is not quite as inexpensive as those others, but still you're getting a full-fledged red camera with all the bells and whistles for, I mean, $10,000 less than the next closest red camera. And that's really saying something. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. You know, red is getting very competitive and, uh, it's going to compete with all these other sort of sub $10,000 cameras out there. And it looks, looks really good. Uh, I might sound a little out of step here, but did I not hear some time ago that Jim Gennard stepped down? Yeah, he's supposedly not involved day to day anymore. So, is it still his company though? I don't know exactly the I don't know exactly the makeup of the company, but he's yeah doesn't uh, speak for the company, and as far as I know, is not really involved anymore. So, interesting. So, who is uh, who's leading the charge? Do we know? It's a guy named Jared Land, who I've only met in, in passing over the years, but uh, but yeah, he has uh, really sort of taken the reins, and I think that he's the real sort of driving force behind this uh, this new small camera. Do you think it's it's the beginning of a race to the bottom price-wise for RED cameras, or are they still going to have their higher-end setups? Because I remember like when they came out with the Scarlet, and the idea of the Scarlet was it was going to be an afford... Originally, it was going to be... F- 4k for 4k it was gonna be a four thousand dollar 4k camera mm, 3k which... for 3k is what i think it, oh I think you're it was right it. you're right i had it wrong yes you're right it was 3k for 3k and i remember being like wow that's you know 3k in the in the days of hd being the main thing 3k was pretty damn great and to think that and then it it never materialized like that it more came out like a mm-hmm. s- semi-neutered epic yeah, it came out like they're, they're higher-end cameras, and I think that they did a good job with this. To me, it feels like there's plenty of separation between the small red camera, which they call the Komodo, and I get it. It's a small dragon, and they called their mm. you know their flagship cameras, you know, one of them was a dragon. There's Epic, there's Ranger, there's a bunch of different ones, but but yes, the, the Komodo is uh, is small, but it seems powerful. It seems Did they like call their does... monitor the lizard side, no. side quest? No, no, that would be I mean, nice. They're missing no. out. That's a million dollar idea right there. It's a failed opportunity to have the the lizard. No. Sorry, Red. Sorry (laughs) that you forgot that you missed that amazing moment. Wow. Uh, Red's really, really serious about their branding. But uh, but yeah, lizard, lizard, maybe snake. Monitor lizard. Come on. Oh, God. Okay. You got to put a fine point on it. Okay, great. Monitor lizard. Okay. Because a Komodo dragon is just a kind of monitor lizard. Anyway. All right. So, okay. So, well, you've presented an opportunity for me. Now I get to come out with a little monitor for the Komodo. And call it the lizard. You should totally do that. Oh, my God. I, I might have to do that. You have to do that. You have a moral imperative. <laughs> uh, all right, Ben, who do we have to thank this week? Uh, as always, Alana Cody, who's kicking all the ass. She set up a, a super exciting interview. I hope happens tomorrow. It's supposed to happen tomorrow. So I don't want to say what it, what, what it's going to be, but uh, pretty it, awesome. Be a goodie. Should be a good it's, one. I, be a... I've heard that person before and they're great on interviews. Oh, sweet. That's good because I'm terrible at conducting them. Um, uh, All right, let's let's thank Kay's so again. Kay's Second time this episode. Yeah, our our intrepid uh, composer who composed all the music that you've heard in this episode and who has agreed to actually do an interview uh, for the podcast. I just have yet to work out a good time to do it. Ooh, we got to get a war story from Kay's. Kay's is nothing but war stories. That guy's a walking <laughs> war story. Oh my god, all the war stories. His stories are all war stories. He's very entertaining. Uh, we should also thank Ben Katz, our editor, who we didn't, whose life we did not make easy this no. week. No, S- sorry, sorry, Ben. ben. Yeah. <laughs> You're a better man than I. Uh, all right. Well, until next week. Until next week. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. 
Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Listening.